if churches in places where there's division, conflict or violence, and they're not trying to work for peace and reconciliation within the wider community, then their testimony is compromised and they're operating with a truncated gospel. Welcome to another episode of the Surveyor podcast, where we have conversations about sharing the good news of Jesus, the people and places of East Asia, and how we might fit in. I'm your host, Chris Watts, part of the communications team at OMF UK. Today, we have another great collaboration episode to share with you. Peter Rowan, co-national director of OMF UK, was interviewed earlier in the year by Eddie Arthur. Eddie and his wife have worked for many years with Wycliffe Bible Translators, and Eddie writes and blogs regularly about making Jesus known across the world. There are links to his blog and YouTube content in the show notes. The conversation with Peter focuses on his thinking and writing on how the gospel of Jesus, through the local church, is a powerful agent for reconciliation across societal and cultural divides. A big thank you to Eddie for allowing us to share this here with you on the Surveysia podcast. I hope you enjoy it and learn as much from it as I did. Today I'm with Peter Rowan, who is the co-national director of OMF UK. That's quite a mouthful of a title, Peter. Good to see you. Uh, Thank you. Could you just tell us a bit about yourself and tell us about OMF? Sure. What is a co-national director? Yeah, well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me onto your podcast video. Uh, It's good always to meet with you, Eddie, and and talk about things. And yeah, I'm uh, married to Christine and uh, we co-lead OMF together. So it's a joint appointment. Uh, We break up the job description in different ways. And I handle certain things. Christine does other stuff and some things we do together. And it's worked pretty well over the last um, 11 years now we've been in this role. Yeah, we work with OMF, which is a mission agency, a fellowship of Christians from all sorts of different backgrounds who are united and wanting to share the good news of Jesus with East Asia's peoples. It has a, a history going back to Hudson Taylor, man from Barnsley. Taylor loved China. He believed God had called him to share the gospel with the peoples of China. And he started the China Inland Mission on the 25th of June, 1865. And then the CIM later became the Overseas Missionary Fellowship and then OMF. And today we work across Asia and with East Asian peoples all over the world. And our journey with OMF began when Christine and I went to Thailand, first of all, and then for about a decade, we were in Malaysia, East Malaysia, and then West Malaysia. We took our two young daughters out, first of all, and then when we were in Malaysia, we had two boys born, uh, so we've got four children. Our two girls now live and work in London. Um, Our elder boy is at university, at home at the moment, and our youngest is still in secondary school. And as you can tell, uh, you might have picked up that I was born and grew up in Northern Ireland. <laughs> yes, that's moderately obvious. I hope what we don't uh, put subtitles in, Eddie. That would <laughs> ruin our friendship. Um, one of the things I, I should say is that um, I regard Peter as one of the, the best and clearest thinkers 
about mission uh, in the UK at the moment. Um, always very much value his insights and I, I run to keep up with him. Now, having, having said something flattering, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're used to the idea that the church is growing around the world and that the role of Britain in mission is changing. How do you see that being reflected in OMF, which is, mm -hmm. a, you know, as you've mentioned, a historical, a traditional mission agency? Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, I suppose the the, the growth in in the global church, its impact uh, probably most obviously is felt in OMF in terms of our diversity uh, of of membership, leadership, general director being uh, Hong Kong Chinese. So we have become an increasingly diverse fellowship when you when you look at us as a community of people and our our leadership is increasingly diverse uh, across East Asia. And I think you also see the impact uh, in terms of the collaborations that we have with majority world churches, church networks, and of course, working closely with East Asian churches and mission movements uh, in East Asia itself. And I think the impact of global church growth, it, it is certainly changing um, it's having an impact right here in the UK, Eddie. So with diaspora churches, very much part of the missional landscape. So for OMF, we, we now, unlike in Hudson Taylor's day, Asia is quite literally on our doorstep in terms of communities, mm -hmm. people. So we're serving among and with people from East Asia right across the street as well as across the world. And I also think that, you know, the growth of the global church, it, for, an, for an organization like OMF, it brings wonderful opportunities to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And together we need to be listening and learning from our brothers and sisters uh, in majority world churches. And that's crucial if mission agencies like OMF are to reconceptualize our understanding and practice of mission in light of the changing landscape of church and mission, both here in the UK and in East Asia. The reason I wanted to talk to you was to um, to talk about the research which you uh, did for your PhD. It's quite a few years ago, but um, your thesis was published as a book. And then a couple of years ago, a, an edited version came out. Um, I'll put links to both the book and the, the shorter version uh, in the in the video and on the on the podcast. But your study looked at the role of the church in Malaysia as an agent of reconciliation in a multicultural society. Can you just sort of give some background as to why you chose that subject and why you think it's important? Mm, sure. Um, I suppose I, I, could, I could go back to um, my early days as a student at Merlin's Bible College, as it was then. Merlin's College or Morland's College, uh, as, as you might pronounce it. Morland. So in, in the late, I remember it, particularly in the late 1980s, I was listening to the tutor, Martin Inchley, uh, teaching Ephesians and Colossians. And at one point, he was emphasizing that reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. Now, I'd grown up in a Christian home. And in a wonderful evangelical church in Northern Ireland, and I'd been reading my Bible for years. But, you know, somehow, uh, now that I was studying this 
and reflecting on it outside of Northern Ireland, outside of my, my normal or very comfortable subculture, it, it made me think more deeply about the social dimensions of that reconciliation and why that didn't seem to be worked out in the Northern Ireland context or why peacemaking and reconciliation wasn't really embedded into discipleship, if you like, that, that I had encountered or that I was thinking about. Uh, so that got me thinking. Uh, and and, and in, in fact, I had a bit of a chat with Martin Inchley about it I, a couple of times, I remember. And his wife, Margaret, was from Donegal. So he knew something about Ireland. And actually, you know, he, he said to me one day, look, if you if you're going back to minister in Northern Ireland, and if your ministry is among the Catholic community, then you should start by reading some novels. Go and read Walter Mackin's trilogy. And, you know, um, he said, that'll help you to see things from a different perspective. Now, it was many, many years later when I actually got round to taking his advice, Eddie. And when I did, I, I really wish that I'd read those novels and probably others too, when I was an evangelist for the, the, the Presbyterian City Mission in Londonderry, um, those those novels actually just those novels. But first, the first one is set in the time of Cromwell. The second is uh, in the context of the Irish Famine, and then the third one is the Easter Rising. So, it, those are not novels I would have been introduced to in my school uh, when I was growing up in Northern Ireland, but. But anyway, that his uh, that's I remember really getting into the topic at Merlin's. And there was one book in particular later in my time there, uh, which was recommended by another tutor called Tim, Tim Marks. And it was a paper on politics. And I remember writing to Ian Paisley uh, with some questions. And I still have the, the letter from Ian Paisley. But one of the books that was part of that course in which I read for that paper was called The Passing Summer. Yeah, uh, a South African pilgrimage in the in the politics of love, I think, by Michael Cassidy, and that book, you know, that that's one of my all time favorite books because it made a deep impact at the time. And then by the time I got to Malaysia, about ten years later, I found myself in this amazingly diverse society, but one which was still wrestling with um, interracial tensions. It had a history of racial violence, mm -hmm. the roots of which. Uh, go back to the outworking of colonial policies. And in that context, I began to ask questions about the role of the church again. And, and if, did the church see itself or understand itself in any way as a peacemaker and a reconciling agent? But like many places around the world, I discovered that those were not aspects that were recognized as being part of the church's identity or seen as part of its mission or preached about from pulpits or incorporated into discipleship, or even incorporated into the curriculum of, of a seminary or a Bible college. So that got me thinking, and that led me to embark on this research. Bit of a long story, but anything to do with a PhD is a long story. Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm vaguely aware <laughs> of that. Stepping back, what are the communities that are present in uh, Malaysia, and how do you see the need for reconciliation being worked out or not being worked out? Well, yeah, I should say, I mean, I, I haven't lived or worked in Malaysia for some years. I've gone back regularly. Yeah. Uh, we left Malaysia in uh, 2009, but I have gone back every few years and I have taught 
uh, courses on peacemaking, reconciliation, and theology of mission and that sort of thing. So I, I've gone back at times just, just to keep asking the questions or to say, is this still relevant? Are these questions still key? Uh, so I, I know something still of the terrain and, and I think there is still re relevance uh, to my research in that context, but I'm not an expert on Malaysia. Not that yeah. I ever was, but yeah, that's just a kind of, kind of uh, a caveat. A caveat, yeah. So, so Malaysia, it gained its independence from the UK in August 1957, and largely as a result of that colonial period and rule, it, it has this very diverse population of about 33 million people. There are Malay and indigenous peoples. They make up uh, over 60% of the population. But then you've got uh, substantial communities of Chinese, about 20%, and Indian, around 6%. Now, with that diversity, uh, you've got lots of languages, uh, ethnicities. Uh, the, main, the main languages being Bahasa Malaysia, English, Chinese, and Tamil. Mm -hmm. So Malaysia, it's, it's a majority Muslim country. Uh, I think 61% Muslim, then Buddhists at 19%, Christian about 9%, Hindu 6%. There's, there's a little bit of uh, quibbling about those statistics and what yeah. you get from the government, you know, may not be the reality on the ground, but that's roughly the sort of scenario. And in, in my research, I identified three key issues that, that face Malaysia today. Now I wrote this, you know, well over yeah. you know, 10 years ago, but I, I still think these are the, the key issues still there today, long-standing issues. One of them is uh, around Islamization. Mm -hmm. So that's about the inculcation of Islamic values and the increasing visibility of Islam in, in society. So for over the past 40 years, it's really interesting to look at the shape that uh, Islam has taken and the way it, it has been um, articulated in Malaysia, so over the last 40 years or so, the Malaysian government, it, it's had a, a dual pursuit of pursuing development goals mm -hmm. for the nation alongside the promotion of Islam. So Malaysian nation building, it's been pursued alongside Malay Muslim nationalism. Yeah. Now that Malay Muslim nationalism is contested within the, the Muslim community itself. What kind of Islam do we want? and so on. So Islamization of law, public policy, that's obviously a concern for the non-Muslim community. Yeah. And it, it has and it does impede uh, the cultivation of a genuine sense of national unity and a better understanding of Malaysian identity. So Islamization is one big issue for Malaysia. The second one is that issue of identity. So academics would say that since independence, Malaysia has lacked a clear-cut national identity. And during colonial rule, and th th this was, I think, typical of, of British colonial rule, the, the Malay Peninsula was a very diverse, plural society mm -hmm. and a very divided one uh, in which the three main ethnic groups, Malay, Chinese, Indian, they were virtually isolated from each other so that interaction hardly existed. And since independence, successive governments have talked about how to build a better sense of Malaysian identity, how to build a sense of national unity in such a diverse and complex society. I'm, I'm simplifying things here. It's very complex yeah. kind of place. Yeah. Okay. So, but identity is a big thing. And then the third issue then, no surprise, is inter-ethnic relationships. Mm -hmm. So Malaysia has this history of racial violence. The worst of that was probably uh, uh, 
50 years ago, 1969 in May, after some elections, about 200 people died, 50 or no, 500 were injured mm -hmm. in riots that broke out following those elections. But al although there hasn't been serious rioting uh, and deaths like, like that over the past 50 years, there is this underlying racial tension mm -hmm. that exists. And the government is particularly careful in trying to monitor that and to make sure that relations, inter-ethnic relations remain peaceful. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there in Malaysia, what is the role of the church in that kind of scenario? Um, and for the church, you know, you've got, you've got stuff associated with Christianity being associated with the colonial past. So there's a need to decolonize theology, develop discipleship patterns that'll help form Christian identity in, in a Malaysian context. Um, well, I think a lot of Malaysian Christians don't, they don't appreciate their, their Asian heritage as followers of Jesus. And I think other communities, you know, the Muslim community and others, they do like to label Christians as, you know, well, Christianity is a foreign religion. It's a, it's a Western thing and so on. But, you know, the gospel, the gospel of Matthew was, was translated into the Malay language in 1612. And that's the earliest translation of a portion of the Bible to be published in a non-European language. Wow. That's, that's something, to, that's a really significant thing, I think. Uh, so anyway, the, but the church is associated with the colonial past. And secondly, Christians do feel threatened by the processes of Islamization. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there's often fear there, uh, depending on, on what's happening in the socio-political kind of context. And then, you know, the church, it is wonderfully a multi- uh, a multi-ethnic community, which is great, but but too often the church mirrors the divisions of the society around it. Right. Uh, and so one of the one of the things that I look at in the book is about how do you cultivate uh, multi-ethnic congregations, multicultural mm -hmm. church, because the local church, especially in a mixed and diverse community, it should be a model of what a reconciled community looks mm -hmm. like. Yeah. So Malaysian Christians, they wrestle with, you know, how do we show society around us how the gospel transcends the barriers of race, ethnicity, socioeconomics, gender? So I think more needs to be done on that. Um, uh, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a challenge for churches everywhere, yeah, you know, yeah, I think including here. Awesome. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Just a little reminder that we're on Instagram. We're at Surveysia Podcast. So why not follow us for extra content from our guests, news and resources? We also love to hear from our listeners in the comments or via a DM. So if you're on the gram, please do join in. Now, back to the episode. A few months ago, I interviewed Harvey Kwiani about mm. his book, Multicultural Kingdom. Yeah. And he just highlighted very much the same thing was an issue here in the UK. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's a key issue about how the church can exercise a peace-building, reconciling influence where there's racial tension, prejudice, and so on. But if the church itself, it's in, internally, is not demonstrating that, um, that, that, demonstrating what a reconciled community looks like, uh, it, its, its pronouncements and its witness into the wider society will ring very hollow. So we, we've, got a, we've got work to do internally as well as um, extending that peacemaking and reconciling witness uh, further out from the church. That, that sounds 
all very good and um you know inter you. reconciliation <laughs> is a mm. good thing but couldn't couldn't a comeback be well we just need to concentrate on preaching the gospel and not worry about these things and actually trying to work towards peacemaking in society is a distraction from the heart of the gospel which is reconciliation between man and god yeah i do i do i recognize that uh concern i i do well you'd expect me to say this i i do see societal reconciliation as an important part of what the church has sent into the world to to be to do to tell and you know i would i would go to a passage like ephesians 2 eddie and you know, in Ephesians 2, you have the breaking down of the dividing wall there, the, the putting to death of the hostility between Jew and Gentile, the reconciling of these two groups, the creation of one new humanity, all made possible through the cross. And this is not simply a byproduct of the gospel, uh, but part of the message itself. And so it is social and spiritual the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of reconciliation and peace in the New Testament, they're intertwined in such a way that it's impossible to talk about one without referring to the other. So I think it's impossible to read Ephesians 2 without appreciating how the gospel creates the new humanity as an alternative community to the Pax Romana, if you like. Yeah. There's a sociopolitical dimension to shalom in the Bible. But secondly, I would probably want to ask, well, what gospel is it do you think it's distracting you from? Because as the late Rennie Padilla said, uh, who died just recently, you know, the proclamation of the gospel is inseparable from the social and ethical responsibilities of the church. And reconciliation is inseparable from shalom. And shalom is connected to justice. And justice is about the re restoration of relationships wrongly configured and distorted by sin. And the gospel, therefore, is good news because it announces that reconciliation has been accomplished through the cross of Christ and can be appropriated and experienced as a foretaste of the reconciliation of all things in the new creation. And, and I would say, too, you know, there's the working for peace and proclaiming the peacemaker are not mutually exclusive activities. In fact, I think if you look at Paul and his letters, Peacemaking in Paul is connected to the church's evangelistic witness. In, in several letters, he exhorts his readers about how they should relate to those outside the faith and who are hostile to the church. So, you know, verses like, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, live peaceably yeah. with all, never avenge yourselves. So Michael Gorman, in, in a wonderful book, Becoming the Gospel, I think yeah. it's called, he would say that the practice of peace is a sort of apologetic. It's a form of bearing witness to Jesus. And I would say if churches in places where there's division, conflict, or violence, and they're not trying to work for peace and reconciliation within the wider community, then their testimony is compromised and they're operating with a truncated gospel. And that was one, that's one of the issues that I think we, many of us in Northern Ireland who grew up in the church there are still wrestling with. Mm -hmm. uh, and and there was there's a fine book I, I have it here I haven't read it all yet but this one considering grace it's Presbyterians and the troubles and it, it looks at it's gathering stories uh, from uh, and and experiences from ministers from uh, victims from security forces from emergency responders to people they, that the authors describe as quiet peacemakers uh, from politicians 
from critical friends outside the denomination. And they're looking at what, what was the role of the church? What did the church do? And what should it have done? Yeah. And I think there's a general sense that actually we weren't doing enough and our witness was compromised. But I would, I would uh, to anyone listening, I, I would commend a, a recent statement from the Presbyterian Church in Ireland called Vision for Society. It's a very brief but really powerful statement that includes the line, we affirm peace building as part of Christian discipleship and reassert the church's calling to pursue a, a peaceful and just society in our day. Now, that's really significant. That's a very short statement vision for society but i and although it's written for the northern ireland context yeah. i think there's, there's there's a lot there for for many other contexts so yeah i believe in this yeah. i think it's part of the gospel Eddie. yeah i link to that statement and also to the book that you mm. just waved mm. at us okay we're coming to, towards the end of our time just bringing all your experience um mission leadership um your experience growing up in Northern Ireland, your research, your life in Malaysia. If you mm. sort of draw that together and I could lock you in a room with the leaders of evangelicalism in the UK and you've got a couple of minutes to speak <laughs> to them, what are the key things you'd want to say based on your life experience and studies? Hmm. Oh, that's such a big question. Um, I have only given you two minutes. Yes, yes. Well, uh, I, you know, I think the UK, we need more and more churches that demonstrate by their life, witness and vision for society what a reconciled peace building community looks like. So I would want to encourage church leaders to extend the horizontal reach of reconciliation and build unity, reach out and embrace the other and take every opportunity to build friendships uh, with our brothers and sisters from across the global church. And, and then I would say this too, take, take inspiration from that statement there, that, that from the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, yeah. that vision for society. And in, in your own context as a church leader, uh, affirm Christian peace building and peacemaking to be a part of Christian discipleship and reassert the, 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 the church's calling to pursue a peaceful and just society in our day um, and seek a more reconciled community at peace with each other, as that, as that, um, as that statement said. Because I think, you know, we, we have our own and have had our own troubles in Northern Ireland, but there, there, is always, um, there are always issues here and elsewhere in Europe and around the world where where we need to be proactive in working out a theology of reconciliation and peacemaking. So, but here in the UK, we've got wonderful opportunities to extend the horizontal reach of reconciliation and, and build, build for peace, build, build unity and, and extend and embrace uh, that reach to the other. So yeah, things around that, I would love to say to, to our church friends and leaders. Yeah. And I think our churches and our leaders, they've, Lots of leaders, they've got tough, tough, tough jobs, don't they, Eddie? I mean, it's oh, absolutely. In, in these days, yeah, speaking in with, uh, with biblical faithfulness and, and relevance to the issues that face us. Yeah. And although this book, you know, my own book and research is very much focused on, on Malaysia, it's very much focused on that context. There are things in there about identity or multicultural churches, the theology of reconciliation that could, 
just help conversations um, on that theme. Well, I, I certainly think the um, the shorter version is something that church leaders should think about. Whole PhD theses are, and not mm. always everybody's <laughs> thing, but I, I, I'm very grateful to Regnum um, mm. the publishers who've produced this short version of your thesis, also of Mike Stroop's book. I interviewed yeah. Mike about that a, a while ago. Yeah. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, one of the things I like to do is to give an idea of the person behind the the face on, on Zoom and just learn a bit about you. So do you think you could share with us your favourite piece of music? And if you want to choose a sacred piece of music and a secular piece of music, that's fine. So what's your favourite music? A piece of music? Um, I don't know if I've got a favourite piece, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. So I tend to listen a lot to Bob Dylan. And I was first introduced to Bob Dylan by a friend uh, in Northern Ireland. He, he gave me the album uh, Saved to listen to oh, back yeah. in Bob Dylan's gospel yeah, yeah. period. And then, um, yeah, and then I had, I had the CD for, for many years, um, uh, Slow Train Coming. Yeah. So I think, I think those albums mean a lot because they, 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 they spoke into my life at that time, mm. but they also got me hooked on on Bob Dylan at the time. And, uh, and I love the track from uh, Slow Train Coming, Precious Angel, yes. really because I think it's an amazing intro. I love the introduction to that, mm-hmm. um, to that song. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that, that singer songwriter, uh, his catalog of albums, uh, particularly saved and, uh, and Slow Train Coming. Cause at the time I was playing the bass guitar in a Christian rock band. Yeah. I was, I was listening to all sorts of stuff and playing all kinds of things like Laurie Norman and mm-hmm. playing badly some, you know, other stuff. So anyhow, yeah. And I do like to listen to quite a bit of jazz. Yeah. And right now I've got, a, I've been listening a lot to the Killers new album. Right. So I, I listen to a whole bunch of things, yeah. but uh, my playlist at the moment has a lot of Killers songs on it. Right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't so that kind of that. what does that say about someone who's written a PhD on peacemaking and reconciliation? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, my favorite Dylan album is Desire. Oh, yeah. uh, in particular, the opening track "Hurricane," which yes. is about um, uh, yeah. carriage of justice. Yeah. And one of the things I wish is that there were Christian songwriters who were as angry about miscarriages of justice. Yeah, Bob Dylan That's right. that song. Amen. And books. What would your favourite books be? Christian book? Mm. Christian book? Yeah, Christian book. It's really hard to nail that one down. Uh, you know, back in, <clears throat> must have been the very late 80s or early 90s, I walked into a faith mission bookshop in Derry, where I, where I grew up. And it's, this is not, I, if anybody's, you, you won't, do you know about the faith mission yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Faith Mission had book. They had a number of bookshops, and I walked in there one day, and I found two books which have remained firm favourites of mine for years. One is a, just a Bible study booklet. In fact, here it is. So this little booklet, World uh, oh, yeah. Bible yeah. Studies yeah. on World Evangelization and the Simple Lifestyle by Harvey Kahn. I mean, it's very just a little, it's just a little yeah. book, a Bible study booklet. But every every few years, I go back to this because it's. I mean, it's written in the early 1980s, but yeah. I, find, I find it radical and I still find it radical. 
And uh, yeah, I've, I've, that's, it's one of my favorites. And also I find a, a book by Andrew Kirk called uh, A New World Coming. Yes. Yeah. And I find that deeply challenging. And it's a book I go back to uh, quite often. Uh, plus Vinod Ramachandra's book, The Recovery of Mission. When I read that in 1996, it, it really stretched me in my thinking. And I've gone back to that book many times, especially the, the, the latter quarter of that book. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. That's and and any, currently anything by Willie James Jennings, I'm trying to read. Okay. Yeah. Get my head around his stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that on, on, on the Christian side, theology side, and um, I, I'm reading, um, I'm reading a novel at the moment by, oh, what's his name? James McBride. And the novel is called um, Deacon King Kong. It is absolutely wonderful. Absolutely brilliant. It's, it's set in 1969 New York. And it's about an old, I think it's a Baptist church deacon called Sports Coat. Sport Coat? Sports Coat? And anyway, he, he shoots a drug dealer. Um, <laughs> it's a very moving, it's a very funny book. Uh, and it's a story full of kind of intercultural stuff which is uh, so interesting and so funny, but really very moving. And I'm enjoying it. I haven't finished it yet. And I I also love poetry. So I I read, um, there's a guy called Aaron Bells, American poet. He's a a bit like a stand-up comedian as well. If you ever, if you can find any readings on YouTube, uh, look for Aaron Bells. And I'm, I'm really loving, there's a, there's a collection that Christian Wyman, the poet has Mm -hmm. together on the theme of joy, a hundred poems on joy. Oh, absolutely wonderful. Really beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. Fascinating. Um, I'll have to listen back and take the names down. There's too much information there. <laughs> I am intrigued at writing on re- reconciliation. You listen to the killers and read a book in which a Baptist deacon kills somebody. Uh, yeah. I'm a very conflicted person. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you very much, Peter. I'm sure that will be helpful. It'll, it'll, I hope it will spur people on to look more at what you've written and to think these things through. And thank you. Consider the implications for our society, which is becoming increasingly fractured. I think that you know that mm. is very clear, mm. and the the role of the church in healing the divisions is an important one. Thank you. Thank you. you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Eddie. You're more than welcome. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Surveysia podcast. And if you did, why not click subscribe in your podcast app so as to not miss the next one? And perhaps there's a friend who might want to give it a listen to. Why not share it with them? There's plenty of links to resources and other things mentioned throughout the episode in the show notes. So do go and check those out. Another quick reminder to follow us on Instagram, we're at Surveysia Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can contact us by email, uk.podcast at ermethmail.com. We really do love hearing from those who enjoy the episodes, so please do be in touch. That's it for now. We look forward to speaking to you again on the next episode of the Surveysia Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.